What did you eat for breakfast? Well, this morning I didn't have breakfast. I don't have breakfast every day. So I just had coffee. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 123. This episode is sponsored by Ignite Your Music Career. You may remember in episode 90, I chatted to Craig Dodge about sync licensing and how he makes a living through writing music for TV, video games, and film. Musicians all over the world subscribe to Ignite Your Music Career and earn more royalties, more upfront sync fees, and more recurring revenue from their music. Whether you're a composer, singer-songwriter, band, beatmaker, or instrumentalist, your music can be earning you more money. Internationally acclaimed composer, musician, and music educator Craig Dodge has licensed his music in more than 1,000 TV show episodes, films, video games, and ads all over the world, and he will show you how you can too. Ignite gives you the information you need in a simple, accessible format, and you learn at your own pace. For just $6 a month, you get a video lesson each week on topics related to music licensing, from writing techniques to how to find your markets, and everything in between. You also get tools and activities to build the skills you need to be successful, and each lesson includes a royalty-free sound pack to download and use in your own music. The key to success in the music business today is to diversify your sources of revenue. Ignite will show you how. For more information or to subscribe to Ignite, visit the website at taris-studios.com or click the link on musiconyourownterms.com. Joining me from Colorado is singer-songwriter Carolyn Shulman. We discover how her dad influenced her love of music, how she won a songwriting competition in college, but ended up becoming a social security lawyer in Houston, Texas, until she and her family moved to Colorado, where she decided to become a full-time musician. Carolyn also shares what her law degree has taught her to watch out for in the music business, what surprises her most about social media, and what she's learned about the difference between PR and advertising from working with Ariel Hyatt and Cyber PR. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support, I'd be really grateful if you would consider signing up for the mailing list to stay in the loop with everything going on with the show. Just head over to musiconyourownterms.com and click the link. While you're there, you can also visit the store and grab some merch, or just buy me a coffee and help out with the running costs of the show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Carolyn Shulman. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today, Simon. You're very welcome. So you're based in Denver, Colorado, and you're a, a singer-songwriter, primarily doing uh, folk music. But yeah, if you, if you wouldn't mind in your own words, describing like everything you do. Yeah, so that that kind of sums it up. I uh, I write my own music. I've been playing guitar since I was, I started learning to play when I was nine years old. Um, my dad has played as a hobby his whole life and kind of got me into it and started me with lessons when I was nine. Mm -hmm. And I played for most of my life for fun and then um, thought about really pursuing music 
as a serious career in college, but decided <laughs> decided to go to law school instead. So I got a little sidetracked and practiced law for like seven years. And that was in Houston, Texas. And then my mm-hmm. family and I moved to Denver and I took some time off from practicing law at that point and just never went back and instead picked up my guitar again and started focusing on music in a really serious way. So that's where I am now. So I see you originally from Alabama. So what prompted the move to Houston and what did you go to school initially for? Yeah, so I I moved to Houston to go to college at Rice University. And I actually, I guess I didn't really have a specific course of study in mind when I started college, but Mm -hmm. I wound up majoring in religious studies with kind of a comparative focus. So looking at all different types of religions Mm -hmm. and comparing and contrasting those and developed a particular interest in mysticism and mystical traditions, Mm -hmm. just some really cool stuff. And um, (laughs) so what do you do with a religious studies degree? Well, you either um, get a PhD or you (laughs) go to law school. Those are probably the two most Mm -hmm. common outcomes. So I went to Of course, there are other choices people make too, but I went to law school at the University of Houston and again, like wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do with that training. And so my first two years out of law, or first two, one or two Mm. years out of, I guess it was two years out of law school, I did commercial litigation and consumer work, which just really wasn't a great fit for me. It felt a little cutthroat. And so I left that job and started doing something totally different. I started doing social security disability work. Mm. And I really enjoyed that. That was a much better fit for me. It felt more like it had more of a public interest type Mm. feel to it. So I was representing claimants, people who had, you know, like an injury or some sort of physical uh, impairment, or in many cases, also um, mental impairments. Um, And I would represent them as they tried to get disability benefits. And I would take them for hearings in front of an administrative law judge and try to try to get them some help. And I really enjoyed that work. Yeah, I imagine that's really fulfilling. And that ties in nicely with the with the mental health aspect of this podcast as well. And I did read you, you discovered a lot or formed a lot of empathy for people in that process. So what prompted the move to Colorado? My husband uh, is a physician and he got recruited for a position out here. And that's been a it's been a great decision on all fronts. I was a little nervous to, mm. li- to leave Texas, actually, just because that was the only place I had ever lived besides Mobile. And I had... We had a great network of friends and I had some cousins that live there. But coming here was was really refreshing. First of all, (laughs) first of all, the climate here is amazing. It's very different than Texas Mm -hmm. or Mobile. And we love it here. We get four seasons. We have the mountains. And for me as a progressive person, it was nice to be in a blue state or I guess a purple state. Mm. And uh, we we made a lot of friends pretty quickly here. So we we feel very at home here now and we love it. Awesome. What's the winter like? Because the reason we moved from uh, New New England is... Uh, part partially because of the winters too brutal for me. Yeah, Texas, I'm I'm liking overall in in terms of weather. It's it's not as humid. The air quality is not as good though because it's very dusty. But generally speaking, I mean, what what's the winter like in in Colorado? Winter here is actually lovely. I actually love the winter here. And yeah, I grew up in a very hot climate. We have two seasons in Alabama and Texas, hot and hotter. So. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> So I was a, I was a little nervous about the winter, but the the nice thing about Colorado is we have very sunny winters. We have a ton of sunshine in this state, and so you'll get a day or two of snow, and it'll be crazy. And then the sun comes out and it melts, and it's mm. it, 
it's really great. It's, and I actually love the snow. I've learned how to drive in it. Of course I stay home if it's, if it's extremely snowy or if there's a blizzard, which we do get from time to time, but people here know how to handle it. The city is super well equipped for winter weather as it should be. And so it's, I don't know. I think with anything else, if you have, if you develop the right skills and you have the right gear, you know, you get yourself a nice down jacket. Mm. Uh, homes here are really well insulated for winter. So it's, it's been good. good. We, we like it here. My almost eight-year-old daughter is learning how to ski. So that's cool. Yeah. I could talk for days on, on driving in the winter, but I won't, <laughs> I won't bore people. It does scare me a little. <laughs> you just need to know when not to go fast. Right. Like when you want to break and when you want to turn. But if you've got a straight road with no one in front of you, go as fast as you want. <laughs> I drive. Kidding. I'm a slow Don't. driver. I've been told that I drive like an old man, which might be because my grandfather taught me how to drive. So <laughs> there you go. So let, let's let's dig into your music. That's obviously why we're here. I've been listening a little bit to it, and I I kind of get the folk, and you've pinned it as like folk cross, uh, you know, and Americana. But I definitely think you're flirting with country a little bit, which mm-hmm. honestly, from a from a marketing perspective, gives you a, a very wide audience to, to kind of market to. And you have one country song called I Don't Miss You, which I thought was yeah. quite funny. Thank you. That's that's always um, a hit at a live show. Crowd like pleaser. That, is, yeah. that is a song that consistently gets requested when I play live. People, people get into that one. Right. Bad breakup and, you know, bad relationships. What I did notice, because I watched the live video as well, you've got a very good picking technique. It's almost like, have you ever played banjo or, or have you learned from banjo players? Because it's got that kind of bass, individual bass notes with the, you know, the higher register chord. Mm-hmm. And it, it, but what what I saw was very accurate. I, I just wondered if you'd had any kind of banjo experience. Because it did did evoke that kind of feel. Oh, thank you. No, I've I've never picked up a banjo. <laughs> no banjo influence whatsoever. I just my dad plays a lot of like acoustic folky blues, like classic blues guys, mm. and you know, like like all the guys you think of from Mississippi that really developed the blues. Right. That's that's what he's really into, and that's not really my taste so much, but. It definitely taught me the value, I guess, listening to it and having my dad show me a few things in that genre definitely taught me the value of an alternating bass and how that can really fill out your sound mm-hmm. and then picking like more of a melodic sound on the on the higher strings. And I had a great guitar teacher from the time I was nine until I graduated from high school. Mm. Her name is D.G. Broughton, and she taught me how to finger pick really nicely as well. And I did some finger style guitar workshops When I was a teenager, I went to this, I had a cool experience two summers when I was in high school. I did this week long, maybe it was two weeks program in New England called the National Guitar Summer Workshop. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. If you lived in New England, you might have, it was in New Milford, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And we stayed in this boarding school in the dorms. It was interesting for me. I was like 14 and 15, I think when I went and there weren't very many people my age and there weren't very many women and girls. So it was just, I don't know, it was like a huge growing experience for me in a lot of ways. Mm. But I got to be in classes and workshops with people like Preston Reed, who is an acoustic fingerstyle guitarist. Mm -hmm. He does a lot of like tapping style work. David Wilcox was there one of the years that I went. Uh, Leo Kotke was there. Mm -hmm. It was phenomenal. So I, I picked up a lot of skills 
doing that. That's great. Any any other uh, kind of memories of cutting your teeth or any any other kind of big breakthrough moments you can remember? Breakthrough. <laughs> So this is kind of funny. I, the first song when I was nine years old, the first song I ever asked my guitar teacher to teach me was a Michael Jackson song. Like it was because I didn't know that was what I listened to at the time. I was listening to pop and that was what was popular. And she quickly, she and my dad quickly got me into things like the Indigo Girls and Melissa Etheridge and Tracy Chapman. And so mm-hmm. all of that music really resonated with me. And so I started learning things more in that genre and that, you know, just trying to find and listen to as many women in music as I could, and particularly music that featured acoustic right. guitars. Awesome. So the other thing I watched and listened to was, uh, mm. oh, Double Stars, that's it. Yeah, uh, Double Stars, uh, which I thought was really uh, a really cool look at something. Obviously, it's a, a love story about binary stars, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing it's a metaphor for either a couple or it's you know a love song to your husband or something but i thought that was a really unique twist on it oh thank you yes uh it, it's definitely i'm using the binary star system as a metaphor and um the story behind it is kind of it yeah I, I was definitely inspired by my relationship with my husband um in writing that song but it started off the metaphor i was using initially was the sun and the earth as a metaphor for a relationship and as i got into it i i decided i didn't like it it felt imbalanced like the earth gets mm. just about everything it needs from the sun but what does the sun get from the earth and so i was talking right. with my as i was writing i was um, my husband stepped into the room and i was talking with him about it and he goes he goes well why don't you just use a binary star system and i laughed and it's like you're such a geek <laughs> you know Right. And I totally made fun of him, told him he watches too much like Star Trek. And then I and then when I really stopped and thought about it, I was like, man, he's right. He's so right. This is the perfect right. solution to my problem. And it's a unique idea. Like I've never heard a song about a binary star system. Right. And so that was what I, I ran with that. And it just I love that song. Like I think it's unique. It's a little bit quirky. Mm. My husband has a cousin who is a PhD level astrophysicist. And so I actually okay. like in that second verse where it's talking about wobble and like rotating on an axis and stuff. I actually researched it. I say researched. I use that term loosely. I looked on Google to make sure that like these things actually happen with stars and not just planets. Because I was like, if Adam hears this, he's going to go, that's not right. (laughs) And so it had to, so it's, um, astrophysicist approved. Okay. (laughs) That's great. A quick shout out to a previous guest, Carolyn Sills. She she put uh, that that's an old time country band um, that I interviewed not too long ago, and they put in something about Han Solo and Carbonite. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah, the ge- the geeks are rising up in the country genres. So. I actually love Star Wars, and my husband um, during the pandemic got me into Star Trek. Uh-oh. So, like, I'm I'm a huge fan now of Star Trek Discovery. Okay. And there's another singer songwriter, also originally from Alabama, but she lives in Austin now, named Grace Pettis, and she has a whole podcast mm-hmm. um, where she interviews musicians and they talk about episodes of the original Star Trek series. It's awesome. <laughs> it's called Troubadours on Trek. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So. Any other songwriting stories that you'd like to share that have been interesting or have been inspired by something out of the ordinary? Hmm. Probably going to have to edit out my pause here. (laughs) I 
let's see. Oh, I guess the song Across the Borderline. So that song, as well as Double Stars and I Don't Miss You, those are all on my upcoming debut album, which will be released May 21st. But the song Across the Borderline is a story about a woman crossing the desert with her two kids to get to the American border. Um, She's a refugee. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that song when that when the immigration crisis was was in the news a lot and and we were hearing a lot in the headlines about family separation and I'm a mom and I it really tore me up to to think about what was happening to these families and these babies babies that were getting right. taken from their parents and so I occasionally help lead music for services at our uh, synagogue here in Denver mm-hmm. and I was working on uh, this was in the fall. I guess it was 2019. And I was preparing the music for a Yom Kippur service for like a kid's service. And I was looking through the the children's prayer book and there were like these nice watercolor images. And I saw this image of of the Jews crossing the desert, right? Like the Exodus story mm-hmm. and, or crossing the, the Red Sea, whatever. And that was when it clicked. And I thought, you know what? Like this story that is happening at our Southern border with Mexico has been happening for millennia. <laughs> You know, like it's been, this mm. has been happening for thousands of years and really not that much has changed. Not really. The the refugee story, right? So that clicked for me and that was when like, you know, I put my service preparations down and like went into my music room and started, started writing this song. And then the next morning was Yom Kippur and I was sitting in services and our rabbi who's, who's very much into social activism and very outspoken in the broader Denver and national community on, on a lot of important social issues. Her sermon that morning talked about how during the civil rights movement, uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, who is known as a, as a major social activist voice in the Jewish world, went to Selma and marched with Martin Luther King Jr. And some other rabbi was like giving him a hard time about it and saying, oh, did, did you pray at all when you were down in Selma? And he said, yes, I prayed with my feet. So she wove that into her sermon talking about immigration and, and racism and the movements that, that are happening in America right now. And that really, that gave me chills. I get chills just thinking about, about that. And that was what helped me finish writing that song. Awesome. So the song was like maybe a third finished when I went in, you know, the next morning for services. And that idea of praying with your feet moved me to, to, to finish, finish it. And, and that concept comes out in the chorus. Mm. There's a line in the chorus that says every footstep is a prayer. And so that's, that's where that comes from. Awesome. So I did want to move on to the business aspect a little bit. What have you taken from your law background, if anything, in the music business side of it? And, you know, have you had any business mentors to, to kind of help your career? Hmm, That's an interesting question. (laughs) So I think what I took from my law background into the music business side is more kind of like knowing when you need to pull in a professional to help you. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm a lawyer, I didn't do any entertainment work whatsoever or any like corporate work. I did litigation and then I worked with people who were seeking disability benefits, really niche type work. Mm -hmm. So when I started doing music professionally a few years ago, I realized like, oh, there are tax implications for things and they're, you know, like I'm actually running a small business now. And so I reached out to a local entertainment attorney here in Denver to help me. And so I guess, so I guess that's my way of saying like, it's kind of like a law school exam where you're issue spotting and I'm like, okay, I'm seeing these issues and I don't really have the 
time or expertise to solve them myself, even with my law degree. So, mm. so I sought out an entertainment lawyer to help me and he helped me create an LLC for my music business. So now everything goes through CJS Music LLC. And yeah, that was helpful for me. He also helped answer some questions for me about copyright law and mm. licensing and royalties and all this stuff. I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah. What PRO did you end up choosing? Uh, I'm with BMI. Okay. I, I don't know. It felt like a toss-up. Like, they seem pretty similar. They they are. I went with ASCAP just because from what I read, there were a few more extras that came with paying the fee mm. versus going with a BMI-free thing. Whether that pans out. I mean, it was 50 bucks, so it wasn't a big deal. Have you have you looked into sync licensing at all? I haven't really started. I'm interested in it. I I'm mm. I'm so at the beginner level of a lot of this business side stuff that I haven't spent much time looking into that. I've just been focused on recording and releasing the first album. And so I think right. that once it's released and and that's kind of good, then I'll I'm, I am planning to look more into sync licensing. Yeah, that's awesome. This is something that's really at the forefront of my interest right now. Mm. Especially, I, and, and the reason I bring it up almost every interview, which I should stop, but is just the fact that when you're recording an album, you always have that thing of, oh, what if I put this bass track in? Or what if I, what if I change this chorus? How would that sound? And you have these versions and you end up with the final version, but you have all these other versions that you could say, well, instead of like putting them in, in the, the archives, you could actually release them as separate tracks in the, you know, registered in the PRO. You don't have to release them as your album, but they could go into sync licensing because they always want alternate versions for like a different piece of the like movie or TV show. And it could be instrumental version it could be a stripped down version i just like to have it's kind of that mindset thing where you're f so focused on releasing you know let's say 10 tracks that are the final versions that you don't think about all the other versions that could be archived can just go to be actually be used and, and generating an income which is you know it's, it's kind of the important thing and i just think that sync licensing seems to be a bit more sustainable mm -hmm. versus the the release strategy, the streaming, it's it's all very dependent on, you know, it doesn't matter if your your music's good or bad. It just, it really matters on how good your marketing is and how many people you get in front of. It's, yes, <laughs> which is exhausting. Yes. Like we're artists, we're creators. We're not, <laughs> we're not business geniuses. <laughs> At least I'm not. I mean, I don't know. I think someone like Dolly Parton is both. Like she's, she's kind of, top of the game, right? In terms of being an incredible mm. songwriter and create and music creator and a freaking brilliant businesswoman, you know, that's not me. <laughs> like, I just want to sit and write my little songs and, and record them with a producer who knows what he's doing. And I don't know, I, I utilize a lot of help. I think when I don't know how to do something, I'm, I am not hesitant to pull in someone who knows more than me, you know, and, and that that's their, their livelihood. That's actually a really, really good skill to to not want to bootstrap every little thing because I think you get a lot more done that way. And you can you you building a team is talked about so much in music conferences and even entrepreneurial circles. Circles, it's it's so important. Like you said, you you are a lawyer and you still need help with the entertainment side, where other people are just like, yeah, I'm just going to read this contract, and you know, I'm sure. You can talk days on 
how one little word in this clause here changes the entire agreement. And It's actually really super true. You know, people just don't think about that. It's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I can't, I can't sign a contract without reading it. I can't. Like the one exception is, mm. is uh, like the licensing agreements that you get like on Apple, like on any, right. <laughs> any like software. Has thing. anyone never, read any of those? No. Like no one. I think they're generated by by AI, and it's just like you get like three paragraphs down, and it's just random text. Yeah, whatever. Because no one will know. I don't know, but like whatever lawyers got the gig with Apple and and uh, Microsoft or whoever. Yeah, I was trying to think yeah. of the name Microsoft. They're like rolling in it, man. They're just using the same boilerplate language for every single thing in there. Anyway, <laughs> that's a pretty sweet paying <laughs> <Absolutely>. gig. <laughs> Yep. Let's see. We've covered your songwriting process a little bit. What is your release strategy and, and who who have you kind of been either looking at as far as, you know, the, the big entertainment kind of release people like Ari Herstand's big on my list mm -hmm. or, you know, there's a bunch of people that are out there doing that kind of thing. Are you following anyone in particular that you like? Yes. Um, I love Ari Herstand. I have his book about how to, what is it, how to succeed in the new music industry or something like that. Yes. I have both versions. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> I haven't finished it, but yeah, I, I'm working on that book. I also bought one of his courses on mm -hmm. how to increase your, what is it like Instagram and streaming or in streams. And again, like I haven't gotten super far into that course. Like uh, I'm right around 500 Instagram followers. And so I'm trying to increase that. And I also uh, recently started following Arielle Hyatt and Cyber PR. And I actually ended up mm -hmm. hiring her to help me with marketing for this release. Okay. And that's been a great decision. Awesome. She's been, she and her team have been awesome to work with. And I like that she's very upfront on her website about, you know, what services they offer, like what they charge for their services, which is not common in the publicist world right. to, to put their kind of a price menu online. So I thought it was nice that, you know, she's not trying to hide anything and yeah, and they, they've been excellent. Definitely up there in terms of, you know, the powerhouses of, of PR, I think. And I think, well, the thing, the thing about the price structure is and being open is that's really what you want because you can't, I just, I just uh, went through Indie 101 mm -hmm. this last week and one of the biggest things they said, like pitfalls to look at, is if anyone promises you that they guarantee you you a hit or all these followers run, because mm -hmm. there's no way they can guarantee that. It's a non-tangible product that, you know, we're talking about people's personal tastes. How, how can you guarantee that a million people are going to listen to your they're just going to get you out there in the best way that they know how. Totally. But yeah, does she have, she has a, no, hang on. It's her, it's her mom that has the books, right? I don't know what her, her mom is, I think Carol Hyatt. And I don't, I don't know if she has, she yeah. might have books. I'm not familiar with them, but Arielle definitely has one or two books. And I think she just released a, another book. I don't know how many she has. I know she has at least one or two and then a new, a new one that just came out. But yeah, she's been, she's been great. And I think it's important for musicians who are looking into hiring a publicist to understand the difference between publicity and advertising. 
you know, like advertising is Mm -hmm. you're getting some guaranteed placement at least. I I mean, it doesn't guarantee that people will respond to the advertising, but it's different than PR where, you know, you have a publicist who is trying to get a publication or or a media outlet of some sort Mm -hmm. to do a story about you or do a review or feature your video in a premiere, whatever. None of that's guaranteed. So, right. so I think it's important to find someone with a proven track record and someone who's represented artists that mm-hmm. are similar to you because they're going to have the connections Absolutely. that are going to be more of a fit for your genre and your, your level of where you are. Absolutely. And I'm very, I'm very at the beginning of this journey. <laughs> I feel really fortunate to be where I am with it. So is there, is there anything jumped out at you that you weren't expecting in that process? Like, you know, I thought, like I don't know, out out just something out of thin air. Like I thought social media worked X and Ashley works Y hmm. or any anything like that in the PR world. Hmm. I don't know. I guess I've been a little like there's so much emphasis on putting yourself out there on social media. There's there's so much emphasis on the importance of social media. And I find it I guess I'm surprised because I did social media a pretty good deal before doing this, but now that I'm even more hyper focused on it, it's it's exhausting. Like it's exhausting. And I, to feel like it just feels like there's a constant push to feed the social media beast. And sometimes I wonder Mm -hmm. like, am I really, is this really benefiting me or is this really just benefiting Mark Zuckerberg? You know, (laughs) like I'm giving his platform this content for free and that doesn't always feel good, you know? And so I'm trying to be mindful now of what I put out there and making sure that it's something that I am comfortable sort of giving away Uh as opposed to something that, that I would like to receive some compensation for. For sure. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And if if for listeners and for you specifically on that note, back in episode 107, I think, Dweezil Zappa and Stephen Volpe were on talking about their platform reward music. And and that is like the whole uh, part of the whole thing is the, the amount of money driven by data that they were kind of trying to get away from and that they have this whole reward is like this whole ecosystem that's self-contained. So instead of paying MailChimp this amount and paying this to this platform, you know, you have this one platform that does absolutely everything and it's closed loop. Mm. So they're not selling users data to anyone and you can charge people for the you know, the streams and the and the downloads and it's all self-contained. But yeah, I definitely recommend that episode for people looking to get away from, you know, the social media machine and the, the data they're selling. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting concept. You know, my, my, my whole thing with that, unfortunately, the downside of it is it is self-contained. How do you get people to it without having social media? Right. You know, where's the discovery? And email's only, I think email's very, very important. It's like the the top thing you need to worry about, but you still have to get people to the email list in the first place. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's definitely difficult. And now I'm hearing something about how TikTok's engagement rate is, is ridiculously high compared with the measly percentages that Instagram and Facebook are doing. It is insane. You know, do you go to TikTok now? It's so I started a TikTok at the urging of Ariel and her team. <laughs> I was really mm-hmm. resistant to it. It's pretty fun. I'm still figuring it out. I feel like I'm not hip on TikTok yet. Like I am, you know, like this 40 year old mom who's trying to f- 
figure it out. And there's like, it feels like the audience and user base on TikTok skews much younger. So that's sort of an odd thing to, to try and see, okay, where do I fit into this social media landscape? Mm. But interestingly, Instagram, in order to compete with TikTok, started Reels which are short form little 15 second videos. Mm -hmm. And because Instagram is really pushing the reels right now, like if you make a reel, the Instagram algorithm, I mean, I got like 1500 views on this one stupid little (laughs) reel that I did. I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. Now I'll say it did not lead to any new follows that I'm aware of. Like people were viewing it and watching it and liking it and sometimes commenting on it, but I wasn't getting necessarily any new follows out of it. Right. So, so it just depends on what you want. You know, like, are you trying to get new follows or are you just interested in views and, and likes? Right. Well, I think the thing that people have to realize is that the, the likes and the follows essentially are that they are vanity metrics in that they don't really matter, but they do matter in terms of the algorithm, because if you only have 10 followers, the algorithm doesn't care, but if you have 25, 3,000 followers, then the, the algorithm cares more. But I think the, the real important thing, whether you use Instagram, Facebook, well, Facebook's probably not worth putting a lot of time into, but Instagram, uh, TikTok, yeah. it, it's consistent posting like every day. The yeah. what, what came out of the Indie, Indie 101 conference about TikTok is you should be able to get a good amount of followers in the thousands fairly quickly if you do one or two TikTok posts a day. And it really doesn't matter about the quality. It's it's really <laughs> the consistent posting schedule and, you know, intelligent use of hashtags because that's where that's what feeds everything. Right. The hashtags are key. Yeah. So but I'm sure in a week's time, something else will pop up and it will be different. Right. That's the thing. Starting to think about Reddit, for instance. Oh, God. I mean, it's like you learn (laughs) one thing and and yeah, five more pop up. And um, it's just where does it end? You know, the the expectations of artists right now, if you want to be heard, especially Mm -hmm. like in the pandemic when live show and and this is starting to change now that vaccines are more readily available and and transmission rates are um, going down in a lot of places. But in the absence of being able to get out on a stage somewhere in front of people, this is how you get heard, right? Is all the social mm. media places, live streaming. I've actually enjoyed live streaming a lot, actually. I've, I've done some live stream shows to my Facebook and YouTube pages, and those have been great. It's, it's different than live performance, but mm-hmm. I like that you can, re- I mean, I guess I should say different than in-person performance, but I like that you can reach an audience that's all over the world, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, that's a benefit that you don't get when you're playing in one venue in a in-person scenario. So there's pluses and minuses to both. Pre-COVID, but I, I think that's going to change in terms of, I think that when, when and if live, live shows, well, when live shows come back, because they are coming back, I think that live streaming element will be ever present because venues are not going to want to First of all, they're they're already they're still going to be limited to the amount of people they can get in the venue, and they've been charging for live stream events. Some of them have the the ones that have actually invested in pivoting their business. So since they've invested the money into the live streaming equipment, they're going to want to keep using that as a revenue stream and broadcast it and have people buying tickets. Although I I have seen some 
I don't know if it was a festival or a conference, but they were charging the same amount of money for a virtual ticket than they were for an in-person ticket. And I thought, hmm. eh, that might not be a good idea. Yeah. Like, I would think the virtual ticket should be a little less, you know? I w- that's that, that was where I was going with it, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so as far as going back prior to COVID, I did notice that you were doing some uh, private house shows. Yes. Um, that's always appealed to me. How, how, how was that experience for you? I love doing those. Those are my favorite types of shows to play. It's it's great because it's it's a really intimate show mm. and you get to meet the people there before and afterwards and that's such a huge benefit. I'm a people person. I enjoy talking to people, getting to know them. So it's just it's really in my experience it's been the best way to connect with your audience. And when on the listener side because I've also before starting to perform house concerts I had also attended a lot of them just as a fan and a listener and I love the feeling of getting feeling like you're getting to know the artist and making that personal Mm -hmm. connection and and the artists who I have seen at house concerts are artists who I have you know ended up following for years after that and some of them have you know I'm lucky to say some of them have become friends of mine since I've started focusing on music in my life but yeah it's a it's a great and it you know there's like minimal overhead mm-hmm. and it's just fun. It's a lot of fun. We hosted a few house concerts for friends that came through town in the past too. It's, it's pretty easy to do. It's a great time. Yeah. And I think that is pretty indicative of the, of the fan experience that is the, I think the most important thing that artists really need to kind of look at these days is, is the fan wants that connection with you. They want to know you. They want to feel like you're their friend. Which, I mean, borderlines on a bit creepy at times, but <laughs> if, if you if you go into it with that mindset, you know, instead of the, you know, rock star that's like on this big stage and they're so distant from the fan, I, I think those days are gone completely. I don't think that exists anymore. You know, totally. the, the, the fans totally. are wanting this experience and this connection. Yeah. And I think, again, social media has a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can like interact with an artist, assuming the artist is running their own social media or runs it in conjunction with a team where, you know, you can have direct interactions with an artist on their Instagram or, you know, in the comments or, you know, sometimes, sometimes even in direct messages. Although, yeah, that kind of some can get into the creepy factor sometimes, but. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to the regular non-quickfire question round. What significant negative experience have you overcome and what did it teach you? Oh, hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like I need to think about that. Well, okay. So I think that this is something that I'm still working on. I would not say I have overcome it yet, but I'm working Mm -hmm. on overcoming it. And that is, I think I have some pretty bad imposter syndrome, right? Like this idea that you're doing things and you're putting yourself out there and you're objectively like relatively successful with it, but you feel like you don't deserve that success Mm -hmm. or you're not as good as your you're not as good as the image that you're projecting out into the world. Yeah. Like that's, that's a big issue for me. So I guess I'm just working on believing in myself more. Yeah. I mean, that, that's extremely common. I think unless you're, what's the word I'm looking for? Clinical. uh, Like a narcissist. (laughs) Narcissist. Yeah. If you're a clinical narcissist, I think you you don't have it, but I'm, I'm fairly sure that most people, even if they don't admit it, have pretty bad imposter syndrome. I mean, we're artists, so it's it, it, you're putting out your emotions. So how can you not be scared of that, 
Like, I think it's a fairly natural thing. But yeah, it's it's something that everyone has to work on because at the end of the day, as long as you're being better than yourself yeah, than you were yesterday, you're pretty good because, you know, we, we just we just need to be the best version of ourselves. We don't I think that the problem with imposter syndrome is it's because of back to social media, everyone puts their best, you know, version of themselves online and it's it's actually false mm-hmm. reality. So you're seeing the best bits, the highlight reels, you're not seeing real life. And that's exactly the the reason why I put the mental health stuff into this podcast is because, you know, you need to counteract that to say, hey, life tends to suck sometimes, but people don't put it out there. So totally. Yeah, I love and I love that you do that. I love that you have a focus on mental health in your podcast. I think that's really awesome. Mm -hmm. And I think more people should be talking about these issues, make it less of a stigma, you know, Absolutely. Um, so what major positive experience has given you the push to follow this journey? Gosh, um, I don't know. I guess just playing my songs for people, for audiences and and having people come up to me afterwards and tell me how much they connected with the music. And I think music so much when, when you're when you're making music and you're sharing it, because a lot of people make music and they don't want to share it. And I think that's perfectly mm. valid and fine and and good. I mean, it's such a personal thing, right? But if you're sharing it, I think the reason we share it is in hopes of making a connection with other people. Mm-hmm. It's it's a vehicle for connection. So I guess I felt like I was getting enough of that kind of feedback from people that I decided, okay, this feels really good. And I want to record my songs for the first time ever. You know, I'm 40 years old and I'm putting out my first mm. ever studio album and it's exciting. And, and I've gotten a nice response so far. So I hope that continues. And there will always also be people out there who don't, it doesn't resonate with them and that's fine too. So, right. you know, I think the trick is just to remind ourselves when that happens, I think the trick is just to remind ourselves that those, those weren't our people and like, that's okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I think going back to the uh, imposter syndrome too is once you once you release it, it the music almost doesn't belong to you anymore. So that's kind of it can be a barrier as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I mean that's fantastic. And you know, like I said before, the the music I've heard is is very well produced. It, it's very well written, and you've got some great you know lyrical content in there that's very unique. So I think it'll do really well as long as you, the marketing team can get it above the noise. The artistry <laughs> is definitely there. So that's great. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. No problem. So, do you have any you know, bucket list festivals you'd like to get on or, or venues you'd like to play? Mm. I would love to play the Rocky Mountain Folks Festival. It's in Lyons, Colorado. Mm-hmm. So it's just a hop, skip and a jump away from me here in Denver. I think that would be a great way to connect not just with artists in this region, which I would, I would like to connect with more people around here, but it's it draws a national folk music audience and mm. national folk music artists. And I just think that would be such a cool festival to be involved in. Kerrville Folk Festival is also on my list. And I actually had the opportunity to play that when I was in college. They have a university songwriters competition. And mm. my friend, Jen Hitt, who's a singer-songwriter, also, she and she actually moved out here to Denver. She lives 10 minutes from me now, and she's one of my oldest and closest friends. We played the Kerrville Folk Festival when we were in college, and uh, we played my songs, and she sang harmonies with me, and it was such a fun experience. So I would love to That's get awesome. back to Kerrville. Cool. Final question is, what does music mean to you? Oh, gosh. I think of music as such an emotional catharsis for me, and... Mm. 
I can be in the worst mood and listen to a song that I love. Typically, a sad, I really like sad songs the best. <laughs> and it just helps me feel better. It helps me feel like someone else out there has felt what I'm feeling before. Uh-huh. Helps me feel less alone in the world and in, in my feelings. And I just think music is an integral part of, of the human experience. I can't imagine my life without music. It's just been a constant thread for me. Awesome. Fantastic. So if people want to get in touch, listen to your music, where where do they go? Sure. Um, they can go to my website, carolynshulman.com. And that's, Shulman has no C in it. People always want to put a C in my last name, but it's just S-H-U-L-M-A-N. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they can go there. They can find me on all the social media places. And I, yeah, I would love for people uh, to sign my mailing list too. That's a great way to keep in touch and you get some insider info that I don't necessarily always put out on social media. Fantastic. And then at the end of the interview, I like to play a piece of music by the artist. And what can we hear? So I have two tracks that are out right now. I have, and these are off of my upcoming debut, which is called Grenadine and Kerosene. The first track I released is Double Stars, which we talked about earlier in the interview. And I just released one Friday, which is called Matter of Time. And I have videos for both of those tracks too. And those are on my YouTube channel. Oh yes. I I saw that one. It's, it's, the CGI's on, on on that's well done. I almost thought it was real science, but then I having a Photoshop background, I, I I caught on pretty quickly. But yeah, that video was so fun. I hired a guy in Norway named Lars Skoland uh, to make that mm. video, and he just did a fantastic job. Like I kind of told him my vision, and he just executed it. It was great. So fantastic. I've enjoyed that video. Yeah, either of those two songs is great. Or if, I don't know, if the show is going to air after the release date, which is May 21st, then you're welcome to pick yes, any other will. any other track you like. Okay. I'll have a run through them again and, and, and see which one I, I want to put out. Cool. So, awesome. This So this has been a really fantastic interview. really appreciate you taking the time. So continued success. Well, it's my pleasure. And thank you so very much for inviting me to be on today. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I wish you continued success too. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform as this really helps get the word out about the podcast so other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing. The more the musicians community collectively learns, the stronger we will become. A rising tide lifts all ships. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering a full range of apparel decoration and promotional items such as screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and much more. The Skinny Armadillo is now offering a merch fulfillment service including on-demand printing and a custom-built web store so you can concentrate on your music and running your business as a musician. Visit theskinnyarmadillo.com or call 817-546-1430 to learn how the Skinny Armadillo can help you take your merch to the next level. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Carolyn Shulman with Grenadine and Kerosene. Your desert sun And I'm exhausted from the heat My throat gets dry My head spins too much to think you found me here With my friends for drink, this thirst survives And you are not what you see You are grenadine mixed with kerosene You 
Should decline before my heart spills out of me. 